pick awards from a leading consumer magazine. And best of all, most all Honda models have special lease or finance rates, most as low as 0.9% APR. Kelly Blue Book names Honda as its most trusted brand, and that's important when you're thinking about purchasing a certified pre-owned Honda. Town & Country Honda also has a nice selection of pre-owned Mazdas, VWs, Subarus, Nissans, and more. Only a Honda is a Honda, and the best time to buy is now at Town & Country Honda's really big spring event. Located on the I-89 Access Road off Exit 7 next to Applebee's. Powered by trust, driven by value. All right, we're back at the uh, State House in Montpelier, and uh, let's give a nice warm radio Vermont welcome this morning to uh, Governor Shumlin, who's joining us here. So you're, uh, you, you really want to say nice things about these two chairs of these committees so that they'll go do things your way. Well, no, actually. I mean, I, in fairness, uh, Representative Heath's already gone, so I can't even beg her for I can't be nice to get things. Like yeah, someone who's doing this bill. I'm just going to say this. No, really, I mean, it was great that you had him on a show because sometimes we forget that these legislators are in here. They're working for 630 bucks a week or whatever it is, no benefits, uh, no retirement, all that stuff, and for 16 weeks. So they leave the rest of their lives to do this job for 16 weeks, and then they go back and if you look at representative heath and gene kitchell they both have extraordinary years of service martha's been managing and chairing these budgets with enough out enough resources in this recession for now you know 11 12 years running and uh, they work tirelessly they work real hard they have good judgment they they know how to find the balance between what Vermonters can pay and what we should spend, and I just think you have two logical legislators there, and that's tough to find in this building. They're also kind of small animals, I've, I've heard. Is that true? Yeah, that is actually true. I didn't know that. You can join us at 244-1777 is our local number, toll-free 877-291-8255. Why did you put nothing in your budget to plan for the sequestration cuts? Because my judgment is that uh, Vermont and frankly no other state has the resources to bail the federal government out of their foolishness I mean the sequester was designed to never happen it was designed to be so horrid that over time as it was implemented the pain would be so great that the legislators in Washington and the president would make sure it did never happen well now they've got the beginning and you know the thing about the sequester you know I have a fear of dentists and I think it comes from one time when I was a kid and I had a deep filling and I went to the dentist and uh, he gave me the shot of Novocaine. I don't like needles. And I was really complaining about the sting from the Novocaine. But he didn't do enough. So, the, you know, it took a little while. But the further he drilled, the more I realized that that little pinch from the Novocaine really wasn't bad at all. I'd have taken it back any day in exchange for what I was feeling. That sequester. Over time, months and months, it's going to become more and more painful as it's implemented. And we just don't have enough loot in Vermonters' pockets to bail the federal government out of their foolishness. Okay, but it's winding up going to be about $5 million. You wouldn't have put a placeholder of some kind in your budget to plan for some sort of reduction? It's $5 million only for a short period of time. Then it becomes $15 million. Then the number gets bigger and bigger. And my point is, you know, I don't, I don't know how many times I can say this, but when I go out and talk to Vermonters, and I have the privilege in this job of probably talking to more Vermonters than most Vermonters, 
and I'm around the state constantly. I have yet to have one of them come up to me and say, hey, you know, Governor, things are great. I'm making so much money. I hope you'll raise every single tax that I pay because I'd like to pay more to state government. You know, I've got all kinds of capacity, so please take me, pick my pockets some more, please. I mean, my point is Vermonters have no more tax capacity. This legislature has proposed just to balance our budget without sequester to raise the income tax, the sales tax, the meals tax. I'm saying no way, no how. Now you're asking me, can we bail out the federal government? The answer is no. At the same time, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, and you claim it's not a cut to lower-income people, but you're willing to. Why not raise taxes on the wealthiest Vermonters on a temporary, limited basis? Because we're already doing it, and you can't tax people twice. Listen, here's the point. I haven't said it's not a cut to low-income Vermonters. I've said it's not a tax being paid by low-income Vermonters. What we have to understand about the government today is a good manager, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, has to come into state government and say, since Vermonters don't have more loot in their pockets, and since we have among the highest taxes in the nation, so you can't tax them twice, how do we take the money that we're spending it and spend it smarter to get better outcomes? Now, on this conversation about the ITC, and I know it makes great headlines, but you know, I think you'll find over time the legislature sees the wisdom of my thinking on this. Uh, we right now are spending great amounts of money to fight poverty in this state. And we're not doing a very good job of winning a war. In fact, I would argue that if you graded us, we're doing a lousy job. We've got, frankly, a situation where we're spending $17,500 per pupil on our education system. And we are not moving more kids of low-income families beyond high school. Now, that's not a recipe for success. We've got the only system left in America of the 50 states where our welfare benefits are timeless are, temp are timeless not temporary so you can stay on the system for a long long time now if you take all the combined benefits of our generous programs and we're more generous than any other state it comes up to about you know thirty five thirty six thirty seven thousand dollars a family if you look at everything mm -hmm. all in what we know is two things the system right now in vermont punishes you if you take a job and take a raise. You literally do better taking the 34 grand of benefits. That's not a recipe for economic success and it's not a recipe for moving from people from poverty to prosperity. So I care deeply about winning the war on poverty and I would argue we're losing it. We have more people staying on welfare longer. Our, our number of people on welfare up, up in this state five years or more is up 50 percent. It's costing Vermonters, you know, eight, nine million dollars more this year alone. You know, this is not a recipe for success. So what I've said is, let's look at the poverty programs that we have and figure out what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. And what I've said is that although the earned income tax credit is a great program, it's a federal program that the state piggybacks, we could take a small percentage of their overall benefit and instead dedicate those dollars to early child education to their children so that their children get a strong start get beyond high school and we break the cycle on poverty now you can say I'm crazy you know you can say this is the right way to do it when I proposed it in my speech I said very clearly you know it may be difficult to say but say it we must welfare should be temporary not timeless and our system locks people in poverty right now so it's a package and to do my package you need to find existing money to move kids uh, into early child education to reward parents when they take a raise so they can keep the whole raise and do better working than they do staying on the system. This is not radical thinking. 
This is looking at what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. Now, if you believe we're doing everything beautifully, or if you believe that Vermonters have more money in their pockets and you can raise income tax, sales tax, meals taxes, and just keep spending more money, then obviously you're going to disagree with me. And that's reasonable, but they're wrong. We're talking with Governor Peter Shumlin. Let's talk about the EB-5 program. The Commerce Secretary recently pulled the plug on a uh, project that was going to raise uh, about $144 million, the Dream Life Retirement Resorts. They wanted to build six 160-unit apartments. Does this indicate a larger problem with the EB-5 program on which you seem to be putting a lot of hope will really revive the Northeast Kingdom? No, it doesn't. And, you know, I actually think it shows that Vermont's system on EB-5 is working. And, you know, the, the, the benefits of EB-5 are that you bring capital into areas like the Northeast Kingdom, which have above average unemployment, unemployment rates now for years. And we're creating 10,000 jobs up there, huge economic prosperity with credible people and credible projects. The challenge nationally with EB-5 is that when you can take in half a million dollars from a foreign person and without a guarantee that it gets paid back, which is how the program works, there's obviously plenty of room for abuse and fraud. So the difference between Vermont and other EB-5 programs is the state actually is actively involved in monitoring and assessing the projects. And we kind of give it a seal of approval in a sense. If, you know, we don't go out and promote projects that we think are pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. And clearly, our agency determined that this one was not uh, adequate to meet our standards and said, hey, no way, no how. They hadn't taken any money from anybody. Uh, no one uh, lost any money, uh, and I would say it's an, it's, it's an example of why Vermont's EB-5 projects make more sense than other states, because the state does work as sort of an, uh, a seal of approval uh, in assessing the projects and figure out what makes sense for the investors and what doesn't. Now, we're not guaranteeing the investments by any means. Mm -hmm. We're not saying if you invest in our projects here, you know, you're going to make lots of money. We are saying that we do more to scrutinize these projects than any other state in the country because we're the only state with a statewide regional EB-5 office and in state government, we have people in place to look at these projects and says, hey, you know, this one doesn't, doesn't look so great. And that's what happened in this case. Let's talk about health care. This week, the two biggest insurance companies came out with their plans for the for the Vermont Health Exchange which will start next year. Uh, here's my qu real question. Do you do you is it preferable towards the goal of a universal single payer system wherever you want to get to in 2017 if employers stop providing insurance next year and have their employees go out on the marketplace? It is helpful to us, no question, because when you go, we're trying to remove health insurance from employment. The biggest obstacle to job growth, one of them, is the unsustainable rising cost of health care. And we're trying to design a system that's affordable. And, you know, I know you're probably tired of me saying this, but let's just do the basic math. Right now, Vermonters spend 20 cents of every dollar on health care. That's a lot of money. If our growth rate for the next 10 years is identical to the last 10 years, that will double over the next decade. So you go from 20 cents to 40 cents. I mean, this is not a recipe for economic success. So the, the Affordable Care Act doesn't do much to contain cost. What it does do is draw down about $400 million in federal subsidies that will help struggling Vermonters and struggling business, and I mean struggling, I'm talking about the middle class, not low-income folks, pay for health insurance. So we want to draw as much money of that money down as we can and then design a system of delivery that costs less than we would have paid so that we're not moving from 20 cents to 40 cents on a dollar. So that's the plan. And yes, it helps us to have everybody in a single pool. 
But, you know, when you have a program that's depending on all these federal subsidies in order to work, doesn't that make you, doesn't that, isn't that a foundation of sand? Well, let's not forget that, uh, you know, sometimes we act as if this federal program is something really new and really different. Uh, most of us don't want to grow old. I know I don't. But there's only one reason I can think of growing old where there's an advantage, and that's you turn 65 in this country and you're part of the single-payer health care system in, Amer in America called Medicare. All that the exchange really does is help to sort of begin the idea that based on income, you're going to join the Medicare program. That's really what it is. They're helping to subsidize your health care delivery system based upon income instead of age. So it's a step in the right direction for the feds, and they haven't backed down on their commitment to Medicare, and therefore I don't think they'll back down on a commitment to low- and middle-income Vermonters who also need access to quality health care. All right, but the federal government, well, how can you say that? I mean, there's constantly an effort to try to cut back on Medicare reimbursements. I mean, everybody's but, trying to, to save a nickel and dime here. You're right about that. They definitely underpay the providers, and that's a problem that we're going to fix in our Vermont system by having a different way of paying providers, moving from fee-for-service to an outcome-based payment. But you tell me the last time that Washington turned to the American public and said, we're taking your Medicare and your Medicaid away. Politicians don't dare do that. Mitt Romney suggested it in the last campaign, and he's sitting in, I don't know, California now looking at the view. I mean, the point is, you have not seen politicians of either party succeed in taking away that benefit. All right. They've certainly tried, and if, and if the federal government keeps racking up a debt, I mean, you know, we're all, if we're paying, people in California will be paying for us. We'll be paying for people in California, too. What we have to remember about health care, though, is that uh, it's not that we don't provide the care. It's that we shift the cost around about who's going to pay for it. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are in America. If you show up in an emergency room, they don't say to you, hey, you know, we're going to let you die out in the streets because you don't have health insurance. We cover them. We do the work. We just do it the most expensive way. So my point is... When you bring more people into the insurance pool so that those who are at high risk are insured, you reduce the cost for those that are currently paying for insurance. So this is more a discussion about who pays rather than whether we pay or not. And my argument is when you get everyone into one pool, whether it's the state or the feds, and change the dynamic on how you manage the care so you're getting preventative care, diet, getting off the smokes, doing all the things we know we're going to do, you're going to reduce cost. So the more you have insured, the more likely you're going to reduce cost. All right. So you, you, see, you don't see in any way that these subsidies mask the cost of procedures and the cost of health care. I mean, you're not really bringing down the cost of an operation. You know, people are being subsidized for, the, for their insurance, and it's kind of masking the real cost. Yes, it? it is. I mean, the, my complaint with the Affordable Care Act is that it doesn't do enough to contain cost, that they didn't make the choices that were necessary to ensure that we not only insured people, but we also reduced the, the, the cost curve so that we don't bankrupt this country. And it's the biggest problem facing the country in terms of job growth and economic opportunity going forward. Why more governors and the president and Congress isn't really looking at the cost part of health care is a puzzle to me. But i got to tell you, as the chief executive of the state of Vermont, I'm going to make sure we get it right in Vermont. We've got to contain costs. Maybe put these on here. 244-1777 uh, is our local number. Toll-free, 877-291-8255. We go to Norwich. Sharon, good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning, Governor and Mark. Good morning. Um, so I came online, um, and the first thing I heard the governor talk about was his uh, dental experience. I'm not calling about health care, um, even though I have a lot to say about that. Um, governor, you're right about that. What we're talking about here are people. 
I'm calling about gun legislation and um, the fact that I don't agree with your 50-state solution. Have you considered um, Vermont's ranking in the nation on gun exports per capita? Um, you are waiting for something to happen, and, and I want you to put your shoe, yourself in uh, Governor Malloy's shoes. When something horrible happens, what are you going to say? We rank number one in the Northeast in gun export per capita. The guns, they are responsible gun owners, but when their guns are stolen, when guns are purchased through straw purchases, they go to other states and they commit crime. Okay. And All right, let me have him comment. Thank you. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Well, let me first say that, you know, you and I don't agree, uh, don't disagree on the spirit of the challenge we have. And when you go through the kind of challenge that Governor Malloy has gone down with the Connecticut tragedy or my friend uh, Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado, Columbine and the rest, I mean, it's just, it absolutely is uh, devastating and we all want to fix it. Uh, the question is, uh, do we fix it and do we do feel-good legislation that doesn't do anything? Or do we really fix it? And I agree with you on both background checks and straw purchases being fixed on a 50-state level. All I'm saying is that when you do it state by state or city by city, you're just pretending to solve a problem. You're not solving it. Because if Vermont changes its laws in one way and New Hampshire doesn't, then you just go to where you have the most lax laws if you're an outlaw. So, you know, I think that if the rest of the country uh, dealt with guns the way Vermonters do, we wouldn't have a problem. Let's start there. Because we treat guns with extraordinary respect it's a part of our hunting culture and we're pretty logical about how we handle them having said that uh, obviously the rest of the country doesn't and therefore I really believe that unless you just want to do feel-good legislation and we all want to do something to feel good about this because it breaks our hearts but you gotta make sure that the laws are uniform in all 50 states or you're just not solving the problem you're pretending to solve the problem and that's just how I feel about it so governor Malloy signed a piece of feel-good legislation you know I just don't think it's going to solve the problems of getting guns out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. If you really want to do damage to little kids and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to go do something as crazy and un, un and 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 uh, absolutely horrific as that, uh, you, you're you are able to get. Uh, the weapons of mass destruction to do it in this country, regardless of what Connecticut's laws say. We all know that. This is common sense. Let's go to South Burlington. Will, good morning. Uh, how good morning, are you? Mark. Hold on good morning, second. Governor. Oh, hold uh, on one second here. Uh, okay. Uh, no, need the other one here. Hold on now. <laughs> High-tech world here. Uh, Sorry, Will. Will. I, lost my, I lost my earphone. There okay. We there we go. Oh, Hello. okay. We're alive and well? Yeah. We're with you. Okay. Uh, hey, if I understood correctly, is the governor governor saying that a high school education in uh, Vermont is a prescription for poverty? Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, you know, and I know you know, I'm pretty outspoken about what I think, and I, and I know a lot of politicians don't talk like this, but I would answer the question: Yes, I think that we are now in a workforce where. If you don't get some training beyond high school, whether it's technical training, BTC, whatever, it's very likely that you're going to be in a low-wage job, a job that will not bring you a prosperous future. And just the way it is, when we were kids growing up in Vermont, you know, uh, we all know that in a manufacturing job, you could make a great living. Today, to run a piece of manufacturing equipment in this state, uh, it's usually a one or two million dollar piece of equipment uh, run by computers and technology, and you go talk to GE, you go talk to the folks that are doing the manufacturing in this state so well, and they'll tell you, you got to have training beyond high school to move from a $9 job or a $10 job to a $28 or $30 or $34 an hour job. So the brutal truth is, 
I believe, and that's why I'm so focused on early child education and education generally, that if Vermont succeeds in having a education system that trains people beyond high school, we've got an extraordinarily prosperous future because we've got such a dedicated workforce. And if we don't, we won't. So it's big stakes, it's high stakes, and I'm telling everyone who will listen, if you don't get beyond high school, chances are you're going to be in a low-wage job. The uh, shoreline protection bill, are you in favor of this bill? You know, I favor the conversation that's happening around shoreline protection, and I do uh, so for this reason. Uh, we know that we're losing the battle on clean water in Vermont. And all you got to do is go up to Lake Champlain or any of our lakes, most of them, uh, in August, and look at the bloom and look at the challenges we're dealing with and you know it's it can be really tough it's it's awful it stinks you don't want to swim there people are getting sick so the question for us is what measures can we take to ensure that our waters are clean in this state now one of the things we know is that uh, what from tropical storm irene and the other storms the highest lake levels ever seen two years ago and all the flooding that we had that if you have vegetation around our lakes you have much less damage and less stuff rolls into the lake that shouldn't be there than if you don't. So the question is how do we balance property rights with all of the other Vermonters' rights who have a right to clean water? Finding that balance is a tough one, but I think the conversation matters. You but did the House find that balance with you know, their I, bill? I haven't read the bill, so to be honest with you, I can't answer that. All I can tell you is I think that they're doing good work. All right. Let's uh, go next to Queechy. And I'm sorry, uh, who do we have in Queechy? Yes, Myrna. Myrna, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm great. Um, have I have a follow-up question about gun legislation or a comment for uh, Governor Shumlin. Sure. Right. Uh, we're not waiting for a 50-state solution to implement single-payer health care, nor did we for same-gender marriage. Uh, why wait for gun legislation? Right. Let me, let me let me answer that, and I appreciate the question. Listen, you know, I'm a pretty practical, pragmatic person, and what I believe is that if I implement a single-payer health care system in America, in Vermont, while the rest of the country doesn't have the courage to do it, everybody in Vermont will have affordable, accessible health care based upon their being a resident of the state of Vermont. If I sign a bill that, in, that allows Vermonters to marry regardless of their sexual orientation, everyone who wants to declare their love for each other for the rest of their lives can do so in the state of Vermont. So it helps, it makes a difference for Vermonters. My belief is that if I signed a gun bill in Vermont, uh, whatever it would say, it does nothing to get the guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them because they'll go get them in another state. Now, you can't go get single health care in another state. You can't go get married in many other states. You can go get the guns. So my point is, I do where I work where I can make a difference, and I don't work where I can't. The uh, Moortown landfill has been ordered shut by the state. The owners of it have appealed. Are you comfortable with Vermont potentially having one landfill? You know, I wish we had more. Uh, Sighting a landfill in this state is pretty tough, and uh, you know. Who wants one in their backyard? That's the challenge we have. So here's the good news. The days when we are going to dump our garbage into the ground will soon be over in Vermont. And that's the good news. We're going to go to a system where you dump everything into a single pot, a single garbage can. The provider who takes that away will pick it up, sort it. Compost will be composted and reused. Everything else will be reused. It goes into products that we use every day. Casella has the ability to do this right now in Rutland. 
and we will have universal single source recycling. That's what we've got to be doing. Now, the evolution of, of how we deal with garbage is extraordinary. You know, growing up in, in Putney, I can tell you what we used to do when I was a kid. We'd take the garbage, we'd put it in the back of the truck, we'd haul it up the, the road, and we'd dump it over the bank. That's literally what we did, and I'm not that old. Wow. Then we went to a system where the town of Putney opened a dump. Now, that dump was down by the town garage. It was right on the brook. The brook was half a mile from the Connecticut River. We'd go down there, we'd throw our stuff over the bank into the brook. We'd shoot a few rats, and we'd go home. So we're making the evolution on how we deal with our waste more quickly, believe it or not, than we might think. And the days of dumping it in the ground will soon be over. I, I missed all those stories in the profiles about you when you first started running for governor. <laughs> That's how I got to be wow. a good shot. What is down, the statute of limitations? Yeah, but I'm thinking more of the statute of limitations on, on dump, uh, you know, that $500 fine. We could retroactively go back and maybe collect that. Well, you know, every Vermonter would be broke if we could. You know, if you don't mention that too loud, because this legislature no, think no. there's a tax source there and they'll go after it, so be careful. Speaking of things that are difficult to cite, um, uh, jails and prisons. One of the things that you really tried to make an effort in when you first ran for governor is this whole idea of tamping down and bringing under control the corrections budget. How's that going? We're doing great. Now, uh, if you look in at raw the, numbers, in raw numbers. Now, let me tell you, it's a yes and no story, which is why we're not bragging too much. We've made extraordinary progress on stopping the revolving door of recidivism for nonviolent offenders, mostly drug and alcohol addicted people who then lead to crime back into prison. And if you look at our numbers there, it's an extraordinarily uh, great story to tell. And I'll get you the numbers, but we've drastically reduced by hundreds the number of nonviolent prisoners who we are overseeing. Now, we've got them back in the community because we're doing the housing, we're doing the mental health counseling, we're doing the drug and alcohol treatment, the job training, and getting them back into the workforce. So that's a great success story. Where we're getting kicked in the teeth is on the detainees. For whatever reason, uh, we have more people who have yet to be arraigned, who are arraigned but haven't been charged, right. uh, plugging up our jails. So we're working on that problem with the judges, with the judiciary, to try to do better there. But if you took that factor out of it, we'd all be celebrating the fact that our corrections numbers are down drastically and we're saving Vermont taxpayers money. And most importantly, given these folks who have an addiction, a disease, a brighter future. Last question. The uh, Free Press is reporting that your popularity based on the Doyle poll uh, is slipping and they point to the gas tax, your support of the gas tax. <laughs> you know, I don't pay much attention to polls. I just do what I think is right for Vermont. If I did look at them, I would look at a scientific poll around the, exactly the same week. Castleton was out in the field, and I had one of the highest approval ratings of, I believe, any governor in the country. I was up at 60%. That's 2%. Two percentage points below Barack Obama. What was curious to me about that is that generally I'm eight or ten below Barack Obama. So, you know, is whatever. he coming down or are you going up? I don't. It looks to me like we're going up because that was one of the highest I've had. But who knows? Listen, polls. Who cares? There's one poll that matters. It's the one that got me reelected last November, and I hope to have the opportunity to stay in this job. It's a huge privilege to have it. And we've got more work to do. So you're running in 2014? Well, I wouldn't Just say that. Yeah, it's a little All premature. Right. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks so morning. much. Appreciate for it. Uh, Governor Peter Shumlin joining us here live at the uh, State House in Montpelier. That is going to wrap things up for hour number one. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes for hour number two. Thanks for joining us on the program. And a reminder that our friends at Green Mountain Access would love to hear from you today. You can reach them at 1 888 321 0815. 
And you can also find them on the web at gmavt.net. Always welcome your emails to mark, M-A-R-K, at gmavt.net. And again, uh, their division of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom, if you happen to be in their service area, you are in good luck. That's going to wrap things up for hour number one. Hope you stick around for hour number two. Senator Anthony Polina and Senator Bill Doyle join us among our guests. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren and AM 550 WDEV Waterbury Montpelier News. Coming your way next. AP Radio News.